0: Hello, my name is Oli Ballard, I'm director at Business Leader and today we have a really fascinating Business Leader Insights interview with Anne Hyatt. Anne is a non-executive director But in her previous career, she worked very, very closely with Jeff Bezos, uh, Eric Schmidt, and Marissa Mayer, who are all top, top business leaders who have gone on, created amazing companies that have changed the world. We'll be talking to Anne today about her new book, Bet on Yourself, and talking about some of those traits that those leaders had and what uh, our audience can learn from uh, Anne and her experiences in business in the world of Silicon Valley uh tech and leadership to kind of start off with that and it'd be good just uh yeah start right why, why did you decide to write the book
1: yeah, I was a bit of an unwilling author. So deciding to write the book was uh, a couple years in the making. I honestly started when I started public speaking. I got invited to speak at some conferences and started telling my story for the first time. And afterwards, uh, audience members would come up to me and tell me what it meant to them or what it inspired them to do in their careers. And they would say, please tell me you're writing a book. Please tell me you're writing this down. And I honestly thought that was just a nice thing you said to speakers. I didn't take it seriously for a couple of years. And then I really realized it was towards the end of my time, Google when I was contemplating really actually leaving after 12 years, that I felt the responsibility to kind of crystallize these best practices of these super performers I've worked with, translate these best practices for us normal people, and use my career as a case study to show anybody at any career stage that these principles and this playbook can apply to them as well. So that's really why I wrote it. I just felt like my career has been such a privileged business school working with some of the greatest minds of our generation. And that belongs in more heads than just mine. I want to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs through these best practices.
0: No, thanks, Han. And and on on that point, though, those great news, you, you did start the book with a rather frank admission that you nearly killed Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Obviously, you clearly didn't because uh, luckily he he's he's still with us. But um I just want to kind of get an insight and you do touch on that in the book. I mean, what what did you kind of learn? I mean, that's a big question um about these leaders and how they're, how they're different you know, Eric Schmidt, uh, Marissa uh, and Jeff. I mean, if you can just kind of touch on that.
1: What I learned from that really, really stressful beginning to my career when I did almost kill Jeff Bezos was that even in very steep learning curves, when we're doing things that are far outside our current ability levels, even when you're having the wet, worst day of your professional life, sometimes that can give us the greatest learnings of our career. That was absolutely true for me of that day when I thought that I had not only killed Jeff, but therefore the entire company of Amazon. And what I really learned from Jeff was in his reaction to that day when we were finally on the uh, phone together after what was a very harrowing day for him. His reaction, instead of being upset with me or firing me or just passing his stress on to me, was he said uh, that he heard I was really good under pressure. And that really shifted our relationship with each other. It showed his maturity as a leader to identify somebody who went through something really difficult, asked the right questions, assembled the right experts, and kept a cool head. And then that really changed the course of my career. I think that's a ripple effect I'm still feeling literally today is then it taught me to see myself differently as well, to trust my instincts, to know that everything's going to be okay. And honestly, that's my litmus test going forward whenever I'm feeling really stressed or like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. It's my mantra now saying to myself, well, at least it's not a helicopter crash. And so that is really what I learned in that day. And the full story is in the books. Will you use this as a teaser for that? Part two of your question was, what did I learn from the other leaders, which was Marissa Meyer and Eric Schmidt? And similarly from Marissa, who I worked for my first three years at Google, she really taught me that being ready to take on a new challenge does not equal being ready to do it perfectly. I am a perfectionist by nature. Um, thankfully, my crazy career has nurtured that instinct out of me, and she really taught me to swing for the fences and to do things even before I could even hope to do them close to perfectly, let alone well. For Eric, similarly, he taught me the value of saying yes to things, leaning into curiosity, and surrounding myself with people who are learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls, as a Nadella uh, likes to explain it. So I think there is this common theme of curiosity of not being inhibited by perfection uh, expectations and to really just trust ourselves and our instincts and to be able to figure out how to do really hard things.
0: Yeah no, thanks, Anne. That, that's really uh, insightful. You also talk in the book about habits that are best, best avoided if you want to be successful. You mentioned some traits of people who are successful. C- can you share some of those?
1: I don't even know where to begin. I've, I'm so grateful to have learned this incredible list of things from them. I think traits to be successful... As I mentioned, insatiable curiosity is something I see not only from these celebrity CEOs that I work for, but also the cast of characters that surround them. The second thing on that list for me is really about humility. And while that might not be the first characteristic you think about when you think of Jeff Bezos now is uh, literally the wealthiest and probably most, therefore most powerful person on the planet, humility runs through his leadership and those of other super performers. I share in the book one really great example of of the way in which Jeff counterbalanced his incredible intuition and smart. He, he knew that he can be an intimidating character. And so one way that he inserted some humility into his leadership was creating a role that he originally titled The Shadow. I talk a lot about the shadow and that's something that's actually been in the news recently because that first shadow who was hired just a few months before I started at Amazon in 2002 was Andy Jassy. And Andy Jassy just a few months ago has been named as Jeff's successor as Amazon's next CEO. Andy's role as shadow was to be at Jeff's shot, at Jeff's side at all times, to sit in every meeting, read every email, be copied on every briefing so that he had the same context that Jeff did. And that informed his ability to do the second and most important part of his job, which was to challenge all of Jeff's ideas. His full-time job was trying poke holes in all of his favorite ideas, help him see around blind corners, and making sure that he didn't become either too dominant in a conversation or create a culture of complacency, especially when things were going really well. That's the kind of humility I'm looking for even now in my consulting clients is have they assembled a team who not only are allowed but are required to keep their leader accountable to having a fresh perspective and making sure that they're innovating and never becoming complacent. So that would be the second quality that comes to mind.
0: That's really interesting, Anne, because, you know, as you know, it can be quite common for for a leader to dominate the room. And like you say, you know, everyone has their opinion and then the uh, leader just kind of decides theirs, don't they? So really interesting that Jeff actually kind of took practical steps to kind of stop that happening. So Uh, lots to learn there. And I just want to uh, mention as well, obviously you, you were hired by Jeff Bezos, obviously. And I think that's, that's really interesting. What was that process like to be interviewed by him? How, how, how did he kind of conduct that interview?
1: It came by a surprise, actually. The recruiter had not warned me in advance that my interviewer that day would be Jeff Bezos himself. So this was actually my third round of interviews. I had come in twice before. The first round was nearly nine months before that day. So my first round was um, just with all the assistants in the company. I was being considered for like an intern level junior admin position. This is my first job out of university. So I didn't have any particular skill set or experience, Uh, but they were just measuring my commitment to it, my passion, my grit and tenacity I didn't know at the time, but I scored pretty well on that first round of interviews. So they brought me in three months later, where I was interviewed with all the senior vice presidents at the company. That was very confusing because, again, junior most possible candidate. I wasn't. I didn't understand why they'd be wasting executive time. But it was because I had scored well, and in the meantime, there was an opening in Jeff Bezos's office that I was being considered for. So he asked his SVPs to do a little bit of a stress test on me, and a few of them had actually been assigned to find my breaking point and see if they could make me cry. Now, that was not because they were insensitive or it was a mean hazing thing. It was actually a very good test for if I could hack it in this high-pressure, high-moving, high-stress environment that would be Jeff's office. I did pretty well on that. So three months later, nine months after I'd started, they brought me in for that third round and sat me in what... I later discovered, was Jeff Bezos' personal conference room. And he asked me only two questions because he had all these other data sets. I had been fully stress tested. He had a lot of um, information on me. And so really what he wanted to measure was my grit, my tenacity, and my thought process and to see if he could really imagine himself literally sitting next to me for 18 hours a day um, because my desk was physically the closest to his in the entire company. So he just asked me two questions. The first was a brain teaser. He asked me to estimate the number of panes of glass in the city of Seattle. And I thought he just wanted to see how my mind worked and if I could break down a complex problem into smaller steps, which I did. But instead of just taking that as the answer, we literally filled all the whiteboards in his office until we got to an answer. And then the second question was really about why I wanted to work there. How is this part of my larger uh, career plan? And um, that is where I got to really share with him what I had observed from my learning process, the passion that I picked up on, my enthusiasm for the really, really hard things he was trying to do and invent. And yeah, I did share with him that my plan A actually was to become a professor. It was not in technology, which he thought was fascinating and supported. But I think he could just see that we were really passion aligned with these crazy goals that he had set for himself during the early, earliest years of Amazon. So off we went. He hired me on the spot.
0: No brilliant I, I mean that that is that that is the ultimate interview isn't it with uh, yeah. uh, uh, Jeff Bezos so well uh congratulations on getting the job Anne <laughs> so Thank uh, you. um and yeah what I mean you mentioned you were in close quarters there with Jeff Bezos and I think mm. people who watch this will be really interested to see is is there, you know not not necessarily in those traits that you talked about earlier but in his kind of day-to-day habits about you know when he ate or, or when he you know got up and you know what you know what mm-hmm. were there patterns which you could think actually, that's what successful people do?
1: I think that's such an important question. And while we look at Jeff and think of him as maybe this otherworldly superhuman person, I do think that a lot of his his success comes from those seemingly small daily habits. So I noticed um when he came into the office every morning, he always had three fully read newspapers under his arm: The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Seattle Times. And so I started doing the same because at this point, I had no idea what we were doing in tech. Tech was a very new space. I knew nothing about it. I hadn't studied that in university. So I started reading those uh, newspapers cover to cover. He was a voracious reader. He was always reading multiple books at a time, Um, very, very just naturally curious So one, he prioritized filling his mind up every morning before he got into the office because his role as this visionary, innovative founder was to give, give, give all day. And so he was very purposeful on how to fuel himself to be able to perform at that level. And a second part of his morning routine habits was always a workout. Now, this was in the beginning of his career. I knew Jeff... 1.0, 1.0, the original nerd version, which is less of the superhero version that he is today. But he realized that his job as a founder and CEO was going to be very taxing. And so he prioritized taking good care of his health. He started eating really, really well. He started working out every morning, even when he was traveling. Sometimes I would ask hotels to open their hotel gym maybe an hour earlier than they normally would because we prioritized taking care of his mind and his body so that he could do the best job as CEO. So being very intentional about what fueled him and gave him that energy that he would then be required to do in his daily job. Then the second thing was how he ran his meetings. And this is a best practice I use today in my own company. I used when I worked later for Eric Schmidt at Google and that I use for my consulting clients is his meetings were actively engineered for debate. No one was coming in just to give a weather report. In fact, he would require all of his teams to submit briefing documents in advance where they would have already, they're now called the six-page memo. And the six-page memos kind of laid out the argument, the decision to be made, all of the research that had been done, the pros and cons of recommended courses of action, and then a recommendation of how they should proceed. And the entire meeting was to debate that, to debate the premises upon which the decision was being made, if the correct information had been gathered, and to get everyone um, coming to a conclusion and that academic rigor in decision-making really helped them keep track of what was working and what wasn't as they had rapid scale of growth. Because if something started to go off the rails, they could go back to that six-page memo, look at what were the premises upon which this decision was made. Ah, okay, now it's starting to break because this has since changed or this has since changed. And so they could pivot their decision-making. And it created a really good playbook for newcomers as the company was growing very, very quickly. The newcomers could then go in and have this kind of playbook of how decisions were being made and how they could replicate it as well with full context. And so I think with that, with like being very thoughtful about how to fuel himself as a leader and making sure that anytime he was in the room, he was there as a decision maker and no time was spent. He also wasn't depleted of energy unnecessarily. So, I mean, there's so many best practices I could share, but I think those are particularly helpful regardless of your career status or stage.
0: I don't want to kind of dwell on that too much, but would you describe him as a workaholic? Was he someone who it was nonstop work, was it?
1: He's definitely nonstop work. All of these CEOs I've worked for are that way. But I think there's a really important differentiator. When people see these super performers and they see them working, I mean, 80-hour weeks was nothing, especially the foundation of the internet when, when we were together. But there are reasons why they didn't burn out. The reasons why all of us were um, able to do sustain that pace for so long was really about passion alignment. Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, Eric Schmidt, none of them needed the money. <laughs> they were not there for their paycheck. They were there because they couldn't think of anything more fun. While every day wasn't, you know, headlines and being, you know, Time Magazine's person of the year, which he was, it was because he felt like what he was contributing to the world was so important that it pulled him rather than him pushing it. And that energy exchange is really important. Well, not all of us are founders of our own companies. There are more purposeful steps that we can take in our responsibilities. You can be an entrepreneur within a job or a company. There's a lot more you can do to make sure that your responsibilities are aligned with the expertise you want to gain, the uh, things you want to learn, the types of projects you want to be Um Running and the kind of leader you want to become, and when we're really thoughtful about making sure we receive in exchange for our hard work what fills us up, making sure our get our jobs give as much to us as we give to them, that's when you are able to sustain those kind of crazy hours and pace. Because it doesn't drain you, it fuels you. And I think that's the big differentiator. And not enough of us are purposeful enough in demanding that kind of exchange in our work. It's actually not hard once you start to do it purposely, but I've never seen it happen passively.
0: No, thanks, Dan. Uh, And just, you know, you've been around these leaders and they've scaled companies that, that have changed the world. So, you know, building the right leadership team around them uh, right. is obviously really important. You've touched on how um, Jeff uh, recruited as well. Did you learn any lessons from Jeff, Marissa and Eric about building a reliable and quality leadership team and how they do that?
1: I think the number one differentiator between highly effective leaders is the leadership team that they assemble around themselves. They are all very, very purposeful. Their hiring bar is very high and they are never tempted to just fill seats. I see so many scale up founders who are just dying because they're growing so, so fast and they're tempted to just fill seats as fast as they're growing. And that's a huge mistake in the long run. In fact, towards the end of Eric Schmidt's career at Google, he was there for nearly two decades. He was asked the question, what's your biggest regret? And he said um, he didn't take seriously enough hiring slow, firing fast." If you had one regret, it was not self correcting some of the mistakes in hiring because I'm, I really have seen across Amazon and Google and my career now as a consultant that the biggest indicator of success is much more about the who that you assemble than the what and the how. So Jeff Bezos has a very, very high hiring standard. Um, Marissa and Jeff, Eric did as well. And I think the way you utilize that team is really important. As I mentioned, um, Jeff, demanding uh, debate and dissenting opinions. Eric Schmidt was really good at calling out the quietest voices in the room because he found them to be the most thoughtful and reflective rather than those who just love to hear themselves talk. In fact, he has this uh, terrifying habit the first time you're in the room with him. Uh, of calling on you if you haven't yet said anything. And almost always that's the junior most person in the room because he sees the value in the novice factor of someone who hasn't seen this a thousand times and is just going to their go-to solution. He loves to call out there's innovative, crazy ideas from those novices who don't know that they're being innovative (laughs) because they're not constrained by the best best practices of how things have always been done. So I think it's much more about the who than the what or the how, if I had to pick just one of the three.
0: Thanks, Anne. And and just... You know, talking about Google and Amazon and those companies, I mean, you were there, uh, you know, on their journey to becoming dominant forces and, and, you know, that they're, they're more than household names, that they're ingrained in everything we, we, we do now. I mean, disruption yeah. was at the heart of, of both companies. I mean, what, what makes a direct disruptor in your mind in, in, in today's world?
1: Disruption first starts with yourself as the leader, not leaning on your expertise too long, constantly disrupting your expertise, your understanding, and being willing to not only being willing, but seeking out opportunities to not be the smartest person in the room. That means hiring your C-suite team for people who are smarter than you or have a better expertise, understanding. But beyond that, really remaining curious outside of your field of expertise, Eric Schmidt is a great example of this. He had a habit of at least quarterly, we would assemble um, what I called Brilliant Minds dinners, where we would bring together a group of people with expertise that had nothing to do with technology. One of my favorite examples was actually here in Spain, long before I moved here. I assembled a group of creatives. So they were playwrights, poets, actors, composers. And we had this dinner. I'm going to tell you, it was the most literally colorful table I've ever seen. And the way they presented themselves was different. And Eric leaned into that because in that room, he was a novice. But what he did as a technologist is he noticed these patterns of stories they were sharing or challenges they were having in their own creative work that he could see technological solutions to, and that allowed us to have an innovative approach, whether it was with creatives or Nobel Prize winning scientists or doctors or military experts. We really learned something from each of those groups, and it sparked some innovative ideas that we never would have had had we stayed in our little bubble of Silicon Valley. So actively pursuing and being in the rooms where you're not the smartest person at the table, where you're learning something brand new and you're really leaning into being a learn-it-all. that primes you to disrupt yourself before you become complacent and, and industry does it for you i'd much rather be in the driver's seat of my own disruption than um you know i think we're all reeling from those feelings of the pandemic so the more we can put ourselves back in the driver's seat the better
0: that's really interesting and, and you know learning it, it, in the book it's something you you talk about a lot and 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 how uh, leaders continue continue to learn and another thing that you mentioned a lot is is resilience and I guess that's quite a kind of, it's quite a big term and it means different things, to different people, but how, how can people become more resilient? I know that's maybe difficult or, or is it just something that's in you and, and you can't kind of train?
1: That is a tough question. I've actually been pondering a lot recently. Is this a nature or a nurture characteristic? I do think some people are naturally more resilient. And I do think that th- some of these super performers probably were born that way. I think Jeff was just born a very resilient person. In fact, This is a little known fact. If you type in relentless.com, it redirects to Amazon. He bought that domain back in the uh, founding years of Amazon because he wanted to remind himself that that is a core characteristic that would um, lead to his success. But I am probably not... I wouldn't consider myself by nature a very resilient person. I really care. Like, If somebody gives me critical feedback... I will never forget that. Like I internalize it in my early youngest years. My, my little and self would would um, let that hold me back, that fear of judgment. Thankfully, I've been nurtured out of that. I now have a very thick skin. I've survived some very intense environments. So here's hope to any of you out there who are, might be in the junior stage of your career where critical feedback hits really hard. You will build up a tolerance to that. But there's a couple of things that I've learned since it's not my nature that I can prime myself for natural resilience and evolution in my roles. And that's in being really purposeful in what I'm seeking out in my job. This is another, another way of my anti burnout formula. I ask myself three questions pretty regularly in my career. The first category is what do I want to learn in this role in this next stage of my career? So that means I'm going to be seeking out opportunities to get outside my comfort zone, learn something new, maybe volunteer for a leadership role I haven't had before or a cross collaborative project where I'm going to learn another part of the organization I haven't been exposed to. Or when you're looking to level up, look to pair with someone that's a level or two senior to you so you can be exposed to their best practices and start absorbing those. That creates a lot of resilience because you learn line by line that way when you're really purposeful about seeking out some challenges. The second thing is in resilience is learning some best practices. I'm not having to invent the wheel all the time. So look for leaders that you not only like, but that you want to become like, whether that's your direct line manager or maybe that's somebody in your organization you admire or someone in your community or even an online person that you can follow their career and kind of reverse engineer how they showed up on that stage or motivated that team in a hard moment. And that is the type of leadership skills that you can start to try and emulate. And that builds a lot of resilience, watching those best practices and trying to replicate. And then the third thing really goes back to your uh, last question about disruption. I think a way to be resilient is to disrupt yourself because if you can do that in small micro doses and continue to up-level very consistently – You're going to move yourself closer to the things that are passion and mission aligned for you. And that naturally creates some resilience because then when setbacks come your way, it's because you were challenging yourself purposely and it doesn't throw you off your path as much as something that is unexpected does. So I think um, my formula for resilience and anti-burnout is really in seeking out those three things very purposefully.
0: No thanks, Alan. And just on on, on the kind of uh, you know the the subject of failure, I, I think it's different in America to to probably UK and, and and Europe, but it's still considered something. You know, particularly at schools and education levels, it's not good to fail. But you know, people like Bezos, uh, uh, you know, Mayer and, and Schmidt, they, they they do that a lot, don't they? And that's what kind of forms their character. So what how, what you know can we change that mindset do you think uh, in in the uk in particular to, to make failure something that, that you need to kind of do to, uh, to to a certain respect
1: as a silicon valley transplant to europe i can say that the tolerance for risk taking is different here but i also think there's maybe a misperception we all including jeff bezos eric schmidt Mercer Meyer and these big companies we all hate failing it's not like we love that. We don't love like getting embarrassed in front of our peers or spending a lot of time or resources on something that doesn't pan out. That hurts every time. But I think that's a misunderstanding. While it hurts every time, I think what is celebrated in Silicon Valley and maybe in the American tolerance a little bit differently is we do it in we try and do it in micro doses. So it isn't like I invested all my eggs in one basket and that's out the window now. We try and do it little by little and insert data collection analyzing that, what's working, what's not, pivoting. So hopefully these learnings come in microdoses. And I think that's the secret. When Silicon Valley talks about failure and celebrating that, what we actually are saying is we're celebrating the learnings that come from the data we got from taking a calculated risk. So if we are taking a calculated risk, we're analyzing the data frequently, we're seeing what works and what doesn't, we're pivoting accordingly, reinvesting our time, energy, finances into that, taking that learning and making a new calculator risk. And when you do it very purposely that way, instead of it feeling like it was a big surprise or you've been thrown off course, it's micro-corrections along the way towards a similar path. And that's what I'm seeing really taking root in Europe now is putting yourself in the driver's seat of disrupting yourself, learning things incrementally, and being able to celebrate it. And I want to point out something here that not enough people do, including in Silicon Valley and in the States, which is while... It's really natural to do that when something did not go well, when you didn't get the results you wanted or the return on that investment that you wanted. It's natural to do what in Silicon Valley we call a postmortem, which is a very morbid term for really analyzing and breaking down how did that happen and how do we make sure that this never happens again. I want a pro tip here that I feel like doesn't get enough attention is doing that on your wins as well, not only in your failures, but really dissect when something performs outside of your expectations, take the time also to do a postmortem on that, break it down and be like, why was this exceptionally impactful? Why did we get the attention that we weren't expecting? Why did this resonate so much more with our clients, our users, our customers? And do that same thing of breaking it down into replicable steps so that you can cross-pollinate that across your organization or your projects or your big goals. And I think that's a big part of this failure formula is actually celebrating learnings, whether good or bad.
0: A couple of other things that, that I picked up from the book that, that yeah, just uh, uh, sort of uh, smaller sides. I mean, what, what why did you d- decide to go for Scandinavian studies? It was just it was <laughs> something that kind of, I, I, I did wonder. It, was,
1: uh... <laughs> it does seem out of left field, doesn't yeah. it? I studied uh, international studies in undergrad. I gravitated towards European studies because it was a really interesting time in the world. They, this was right about the time when they were preparing to launch the Euro. And so I thought it was a really interesting economics example of how the world is so interconnected. So I think a lot of it originally was around this rare occurrence of creating a global new currency that kind of pulled me into European studies in general. Then I'm uh, Scandinavian by heritage. My family's from Sweden and Denmark. And so as part of my international studies program, we were required to speak two foreign languages, uh, which I know is Common here in Europe, but not for Americans. (laughs) So I ended up studying abroad and I, because of my heritage, I went to Sweden. I lived there for two years during undergrad and I really fell in love with it. So that was my first time living abroad, learning a foreign language, being exposed to a completely different political system or culture and then um now living in spain later it's this nice full circle moment to be back in europe but uh that's really why i just felt like a blood connection to it it was kind of part of my studies and then when i after i left amazon in dubai and dubai phd i really focused on that because it was a big part of the dialogue in the world at the time i was studying effects of membership in the european union on social democratic states and honestly, if I'd stayed with my plan A to be a professor, it was actually a really topical <laughs> area of expertise at the moment, but my plan B worked out pretty well also.
0: You mentioned obviously in the book as well, you, you met Shimon Perez um, through your mm-hmm. work and that had a kind of profound uh, impact mm-hmm. on you. What, well, Why? Uh, in, 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 in what way, Anne?
1: There were two things that happened that day that were really important for my long-term career development. One was that was the first time I was invited into a meeting like that. I was um, traveling with Marissa Meyer, and we were doing an annual trip with her young APMs. So the APMs are Associate Product Managers, and these are the brightest engineers from all over the world come in. It's a class of about 15 to 20 they come in and they do a training program. So they are paired with some highly effective managers to become the next generation of leaders at Google. We, they really believed, Marissa in particular believed in homegrown talent. And so at the end of their program, which is a two-year rotation program, we did a global tour. It was in the middle of this global tour in, I think it was 2007. We had gone to Tokyo and Beijing, Bangalore, and we were in Tel Aviv, which is a great startup hub. So much creativity and innovation comes out of Israel. And when we had just arrived in country, we got a message from Shimon Perez's office asking us to come because he had just started uh, Shimon Perez's uh, Center for Peace, He had won the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, I think 10 years just before that. And he really wanted to help use this natural innovative uh, tendencies in his country to have peaceful effect in the region and the globe. And so he wanted to invite us as technologists to come in and talk to him about how he could scale peace process in, in the world. And it was a great privilege. And I stayed up all night preparing this briefing document for Marissa so that we could make um, the most good happen out of this short meeting as we could. And when she was on to the way to the meeting, because I'd been up all night with the policy teams and I knew the talking points backwards and forwards, she invited me to join the meeting. That had never happened before. So this is really a like, up-leveling moment for me. And I was so grateful that she as a leader would invest in me And take a chance on inviting me into a very, very impactful meeting. And then once I was in that room, I was appropriately terrified. I mean, these are very powerful executives. And it was a one-on-one meeting between Marissa and Shimon Peres. And instead of allowing me to sit quietly in the corner, which probably would have been my tendency, Shimon Peres treated me like an equal third part he would ask me questions. He was very insightful when we would ask questions or share something we were doing. He had this incredible ability to up-level our comments and our questions into something that just felt otherworldly. I mean, he just has such a gift for words and such a peaceful presence. And so I learned something from Marissa in investing in me as a junior employee and seeing some enthusiasm and talent on my part that could be utilized. And him as a leader of really appreciating the perspectives of everyone in the room. And that is something... I hope I will pay forward through the rest of my career um, to emulate those best practices.
0: No, thanks, uh, Anne. And yeah, I mean, th- those were my questions. I-, I guess to finish off, it would be good just to say, you know, why why should people come and uh, read your book? Uh, we have it here. Um, and yeah, just uh, 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 just a-, a conclusion there, please, Anne.
1: Ali, thank you so much for this interview. It means a lot to me to share this with your community. I, I- What I really hope resonates is, that everyone, no matter your stage of your career, there are things that we can do to empower ourselves to make our dreams come true. I started my career in 2002, just after the dot-com bust in Seattle, which was a very tech-heavy city. It seemed on the outside that all opportunities had evaporated overnight. When I was getting ready to graduate, I sent out fifty, probably a hundred resumes, and didn't get a single call back at first. There might be someone out there listening who feels that way, who feels like your plan A has disappeared because of the pandemic and because of some tightening of the belts or, you know, global chaos. I'm here to tell you that maybe that's the best thing that could ever happen to you, which was the case for me. Maybe it will force you to think creatively about what you want to contribute to the world and, and ch- Try out a job title or an industry you hadn't yet considered. The second is for those who are really looking to up-level. Maybe you're trying to get your uh, your big break, take on a leadership role you haven't had before, get that big client account. That happened to me in 2008. I was at Google. I'd been there for almost three years. I was looking for my first leader leadership opportunities when the 2008 economic crisis happened. And even at Google, tightening of the belt, and I felt like that um, opportunity disappeared for me. But it really required me to up level, to get more creative with my contributions, and to be more mindful about how I could measure my contributions and prove its value in a way that I probably wouldn't have dug into earlier. And then the third category of reader I really had in mind in writing this book was people who are in those leadership positions, whether maybe you've taken a chance and you've converted your side hustle into your main hustle, or you are the CEO or leader of your team or organization, how can you channel that into making sure you don't burn yourself out? And how can you really empower the team around you to also be very mission, vision, and passion aligned so that you all can have this longevity of returns on what really matters to you most? I think that the greatest silver lining I'm seeing post-pandemic is this realignment to mission-driven teams. People are being very choosy where they spend their dollars. They're being very choosy about where they spend their time, their influence, and their resources. And I love to see like-minded people coming together to make really impactful changes in their communities, their families, and in their companies. And so I really hope that that's what stands out in this book is there are some playbooks from, yes, super performers, but they are applicable to you. This book just uses my career as a case study to prove to you that It can be uh, adopted by literally anyone. Um, I know that sometimes when we look at Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt and Amazon and Google can feel like it doesn't apply to us, but this book hopefully will prove to you that it does. And there are some best practices that can really accelerate your impact today.